Hey, Dave. How are you today? Um, the What Difference Doesn't Make podcast. <laughs> it is definitely a great day on the What Difference Doesn't Make podcast. We're discussing how much we like talking to Hollywood types. You shouldn't do quotes. This was a, he is a Hollywood type. He made a movie. We love movies. I love movies probably more than you. You don't go to the movies too much, but I, I'm kidding. I don't, I, uh, no, I'm going to have to argue with you there. I do love going to movies. I just don't do it as much. I love movies. Okay. Just, you know, with so much good TV content, it's hard to pull myself away. All right. Well, we love movies, and this is a man named Thomas Robsom, and he has directed Aha! The Movie, and Holly and I both got an advanced screening of it and loved it. When we first saw that this is a... Uh, a documentary about aha we were like uh, i i don't know we didn't have an aha moment until we saw it and then <laughs> like oh aha i get it uh, it's kind of interesting especially a band that a lot of people uh myself included think of them as a one-hit wonder but you know what happens to a band after that you know just because they're not huge in the united states there's a whole other world going on uh, where they're still playing music we were surprised to learn how successful they are in the almost entire rest of the world. So it was really great to see all the personalities, seeing the behind the scenes with the band. We love movies. We love social media. Where can they find uh, the What Difference Does It Make podcast on social media and learn more about the movies that Thomas Robsom has made? So on social media, you can find us at WDDIM Podcast and on YouTube at What Difference Does It Make Podcast. You'll find clips from this interview with Thomas Robsom and many others. Fun fact, he also is a producer for one of my favorite films that was nominated for an Academy Award, Worst Person in the World. He's the producer. It's a beautiful film, and I loved it a lot. So we're talking two films in this podcast today. So why don't we just get right into it? This is Thomas Robsom on the What Difference Does It Make podcast. Hello. 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 Where in the world are you right now? I'm between Oslo and a small city called Hamar where I live, which is uh, one and a half hour outside of Oslo. We are an 80s music podcast. And even though, you know, like you've got your, this Academy Award nominated movie, Worst Person in the World is a pretty big deal. Let's talk AHA first and, and work our way to the, to probably the headliner, I guess, would be a way to look at it. Um, well, for us, AHA would be the headliner for the rest of the world. It might be Worst Person in the World. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Can you explain AHA to me? I mean, we know AHA as a band that had a number one hit, Smash, all over the world, so big that the James Bond people noticed it. They had a top 20 hit in the United States, and then they kind of fell off, but they keep going on. They continued, and why don't you kind of give like a, a brief uh, rundown of, of what is AHA? And the extent of their success in the rest of the world. Yeah, well, you know, AHA were three very ambitious young men who decided to go to London to, to break through and to be pop stars. You know, they decided that when they were very young and they were totally convinced that they would succeed uh, and nobody else was uh, convinced. So even, even I, who, who knew some people that went to London when they were there, they met them and they even heard their music and thought they were terrible. And when they showed up on television in Norway for the first time, everybody thought it was kind of, you know, it, it wasn't very convincing. But at the same time, we really hoped for it because Norway had nothing culturally. You know, we had no films that anybody knew. We, we had no football players that anybody knew, no music, nothing. So we hoped that they would succeed, but we didn't think they would. 
but then they did and it's really strange that they lost the US so so quickly I guess they had this idea that they could have a hit and then do whatever they wanted just like the Beatles had done but the, the, the problem was that the Beatles spent four or five six years being a pop band and then they started doing the other thing but AHA started immediately after the hit and so the second album was not what people probably expected after Take On Me so America was lost but in the rest of the world in UK and South America all over the world they continued being a big big band and even after breaking up after five albums or having a, a pause they came back and it turned out they were still really big and for the last 20 years they've toured a lot released new records and still have really big audiences i mean bigger than many other bands that you might think are bigger i mean they are probably one of the biggest bands from the 80s if you look at it from you know how many people go and see their shows i think for sure you two are bigger and the cure and Certainly some American bands I don't even remember now, but they are bigger than, than many bands that are more famous. I guess it sounds like just tenacity on their part, just to the fact that they thought they could make it in London. There, uh, You know, we watched, both of us watched the documentary, which we love, but there wasn't a lot of video footage for, of them performing in, in London. It, was there a reason that because it was so bad that it's like, uh, you know what, we don't, we don't need to show this? No, uh, well, you know, they are on top of the pops, uh, and uh, the first time they were on TV, Norwegian television is in the film, and also the terrible first music video. So I think you see some of, you know, that things didn't turn out exactly like they wanted in the beginning. But then when they when they start touring, of course, they also did London. Many of the years they spent in London was, of course, uh, you know, trying, trying, trying. And then finally succeeding, strangely enough, with the American Warner Brothers, not with the British. So it was it was uh, also luck. You know, they were really, really lucky because uh, the music video was, of, of course, extremely important for the breakthrough. I don't think the music video is so important these days because the song does great also without it. But for the breakthrough, the video was was really important. Did you have a connection to them? I mean, you're Norwegian. They're Norwegian. Did you know of them as they were up and coming in, in Norway for however much time they spent trying to make it there? I didn't know them personally, but we had heard about these guys that had gone to London. Also... Paul and Magna had the, the band Bridges before AHA, and they released an album that I had noticed that had been released. For me, as, as a punk, it was a little bit too hippish, so I didn't buy it. But I noticed that they also released it by themselves on their own label, which was very inspired by the punk movement. Because in 1980, everybody started in Norway to release their own records. And I know that that was uh, something that inspired them. And also, I think they felt that there was no good music in Norway through the 70s. And the only time they felt that something interesting was happening was when punk and post-punk bands started coming up in Norway in the early 80s. And also, when they went to England, they felt that, you know, there is some competition. There are some great bands there. But they also were clearly inspired by, by you know, bands like Soft Cell, The Fresh Mode, and Echo and the Bunnermen, and all of those also came from the from punk. They were punks starting to make more interesting music. You know, that was how I knew them. 
that I knew that they had done to try this out and that they had returned a couple of times without succeeding. And finally they made it. And for me personally, when I heard their second single, the Sonova Chanson TV, that's when I felt that, oh my God, these guys really have something special. We've never heard anything like this in Norway. inspiring for everyone in Norway and it opened up doors even today you know we see Norwegian bands and artists that clearly have got the self-confidence from what AHA achieved. You mentioned that there was a couple tries unsuccessful tries they described their initial take on take on me as the juicy fruit song. Did they recognize immediately that they had some? I mean, it's it's really fascinating because they recognized that there was something in this song, but they couldn't quite put it together. And uh, they had a couple runs at it until they got it right. Yeah, it was even more than a couple because, you know, they had the song in, in Bridges in the previous band, and then it was a rock song. And then when they um, brought it on to AHA, uh, they tried it with different titles and different versions also as an aha song and then going more in a, in a synth pop direction and morton insisted on that song while uh, paul was not so convinced especially since he didn't like the chorus so he changed that after a while i think there's like five versions of that song so they've had a long career and yeah. especially for guys that don't they, they, <laughs> there's, no, I don't want to call it contentiousness within the band, but didn't always appear to get along with each other or to even like each other that much. Yeah. You know, bands don't get started because four guys or girls know each other for 10 years and then they start a band. <laughs> Most bands start because, you know, out of 30 people, there's one playing guitar and if you're lucky you have a friend that plays another instrument and then you start searching for other ones do you know a drummer yeah i've heard about this drummer she lives over there 
and then suddenly you have a band and most of those bands just you know finish after a while but if that band becomes <laughs> world famous and get hits then you are stuck with those people for the rest yeah. of your life <laughs> so that's the problem with so many bands you know that suddenly you have to deal with these people uh, that you would maybe never see again, you know, if the band was not successful. So I guess that's the story of AHA and the story of many bands. But their stubbornness and their personalities is also the reason why they had success, I think. You know, that they really believed in things that everybody thought was a joke. And they just insisted and they felt that we have music that is good enough. And we have a singer and he has a great voice and we write great music. And it, it is a top international level if we get some help we, we're gonna make it and you need you know to, to say that to yourself and to others in the late 70s and early 80s in Norway was insane was totally insane <laughs> now you can say it and nobody will and people say yeah maybe you're right and most people just laughed at them but they still continued so for a while they were very together you know and it was those three against the world but after they had the breakthrough what happens is, you know, Morton gets all the attention and everybody thinks he looks great and sings great. And Paul gets recognition for being a fantastic songwriter. And people kind of don't notice that Magna has been a really important part of the songwriting too. He wrote a riff of, on Take On Me. It's paying all their bills today. <laughs> and so all three kind of don't feel appreciated in their own band by the other two. <laughs> a big problem with this band you know they don't appreciate each other's talents enough to really make the band as good as it could have been because they could have been even bigger and ego too you know some bands are willing to share everything completely songwriting credits everything equally yeah well you know you can all i can kind of understand all three in some crazy way because i can also understand that paul you know if you write 90 percent of a song and you have this very clear idea of how you want the song and then somebody helps you with a small part and then they are suddenly you know 50 50 in a way mm -hmm. you know as, as a credit I can, I can understand that that can feel strange also mm -hmm. i think in a band you have to divide everything because it's not just the songwriting that is important mm -hmm. in a band it's everything so when bands you know you get one member of a band being like 10 times richer than the other guys you know then you start getting problems and songwriting is how you make money mostly so uh, i think that if the manager had come in and said okay i'm gonna sign you but only if we divide everything between the three because you know i'm signing all of three of you and i think this band is going to be successful only if you three are the one from now and forever and then that could have sold a lot because at that stage i think everybody would have said okay that's fine so morton was the one who got most of the attention in public because in the film it didn't look like they were so resentful of that i think they thought it was okay on one hand but on the other hand paul and max they argue a lot about songwriting and and those things but more and the other two have very different tastes in music and very different views on life morton is, is a christian uh, the other two are more like socialists or social democrats, typically in Norwegian. I think they view the world 
quite differently. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when Morton kind of fronted the band and sometimes maybe said things that the others didn't agree with. And also he was the new one in the band. It's kind of like, why does this new guy in the band get all the attention? We built this up for years before he came in. So I think maybe they thought it was a little bit more difficult than they admitted uh, in the film. <laughs> well, let's talk about the film, this documentary. How did you approach these guys? What Was it your idea first? Like, okay, or what was yeah. it that drove you to like, I've got to get this done. This is something I need to do. It started when I was 10 years old, okay. eight years before Aha even started. <laughs> wow. Uh, that, that's quite a story. Yeah. And, and kind of like almost 50 years before the film was even done. It started when I saw Let It Be, the film about the Beatles. As I was a big Beatles fan as a, as a child. And when I saw that film, I was shocked uh, because they argued, but I was also very impressed by, you know, being there while they made the Beatles music. I mean, that film stuck with me for so many years and for for a long time, it was also unavailable. So I I didn't see it again until quite recently. And then, of course, Get Back was the Mm -hmm. ultimate version of that material. But it was funny to see it again because it turned out they only argued for like 90 seconds or something. (laughs) Most of the time. So, I mean, I don't see why the Beatles were so dissatisfied with that film. But uh, I know now when you see Get Back and you see how much material they, they had. But anyway, so when I started making films myself, to make a film about a band making a record has always been something I wanted to do. So that was something I tried to do in the late 80s, early 90s, and it always stopped because I didn't have the fi- I didn't find the financing. Because in documentary, it's it's always tough to get financing for music documentaries, or at least it used to be, because there are so many, you know, more important topics you know, social topics or, you know, war all over the world and all kinds of topics that are kind of more important when you you ask for that kind of money, like we do in Norway, where we need, you know, public funding. And also the TV channels don't have money to finance and they don't think music is kind of important enough to finance it. So so it didn't happen with different Norwegian bands I tried in the 80s and 90s. But I didn't try AHA because I was sure that they were too big at that point you know and in the 90s they also had a big break where they didn't play together for six years and then i was you know busy with other things for many years but then in 2009 mags showed up at the premiere of a film i produced and where i also made the film music the score because we ran out of money so i had to make the music myself and he actually congratulated me on the music and thought that the film music i made for the film was great so he sent me an email, which I kind of have now put in a frame, a gold <laughs> frame. <laughs> but that was an occasion for me. Then I, I remember that when I read that email and when I thought about the day after, I thought, shit, this is my occasion now. In 2009, they had made their ninth album. It was very successful. It, they had new hits in the UK and they actually were planning to try to get into the States again. They had a new manager. Everything was looking good for the band. So I wrote an email to Mags and said, wouldn't it be a great idea if I made a film about your 10th album, the kind of anniversary album, and the album where you make a big new impact because everything is kind of going in the right direction now. And so Magne answered, it's a great idea, but there's just one problem. We're not going to make a new album. 
because we're going to split up. <laughs> so in 2010, they split. And I, of course, said to him that, okay, but call me when you get back together. <laughs> this is a Beatles situation. Uh, yeah. And he said, it's never going to happen. And then, of course, they did get back together in 2015, suddenly with a new album. And so I wrote him, hey, you forgot to call me. <laughs> and he said, well, but this album was made like all our recent albums. We're not actually together. Everything is made separately. Morton makes songs in Stockholm. Paul makes songs in New York. I make my songs in Oslo. And then we just put them together and argue about which songs should be in the album and not and and it's the usual thing and but then i said okay but can we start filming maybe you're gonna make another album i hope you're not splitting up again <laughs> and he said yeah well talk to the manager i'm positive but, but uh, talk to the manager and the manager first said well since magnus says so i can send an email to the other two but when i send emails to the band i get an answer every 100 emails mm. So I wouldn't have my hopes too high. I don't think they're going to want this to happen. And then he called me back 10 minutes later and said, I don't know who you are. I have to Google you because they all said yes in 10 minutes. <laughs> and that never happens. And it was lucky that Paul was awake over in L.A. But yeah, so they are positive. So then I said, OK, so can we have a meeting? Because I would like to meet everybody and talk about the film and tell you what I want to do and, you know, see what you want me to do and whatever and the manager said uh, we don't do meetings <laughs> so uh, we never meet so you you just have to show up at the tour and uh, i can't promise you anything they've said yes so let's see what happens and that's basically what happened for the next four or five years that i showed up and tried to get as much materials as i could and separately they are available i can text them and meet them and do interviews or film things but the hard thing is to get them together so no as you saw in the film you know no new album <laughs> while i was making the film so i didn't actually make the film i dreamt of <laughs> but still i hope i made a film that made more people listen to aha because that was my main ambition all right we are talking aha on the what difference does make podcast but our aha moment is we need to somehow get this podcast some cash so we're going to take a break and we'll be right back. Aha, uh -huh. we're back on the What Difference Does It Make podcast with Thomas Robson. Obviously, we're fans of 80s music. And we're fans yeah. of music in general. But the footage that you included in the film, I think would draw a lot of people in to see them live. Seeing the footage, really, it drew me in. Definitely. When they had the number one hit in the U.S., they had never played live together. Uh, they had played, in, <laughs> played a few shows with Bridges and a few shows with Morton's band. But I don't think it was more than like 10 shows each or something. So then they had to rehearse a lot and get some backing musicians. And in the beginning of their first tour, I don't think it was the best live band in the world. But then I think maybe the, the, the best live version of Aha was in the early 90s when they played in South America and everything was live. You know, it was really a live feeling. And 
after they came back together again from 2000 and on, it's still great, but it's not as loose as it was in the early 90s. And Morton is more, you know, <laughs> always with the listening <laughs> issues and everything, which, which kind of, you know, he really enjoyed it in the early 90s, actually. You know, if you see the footage from South America, he's... Yeah. Yeah. runs around and is really having a good time. Can you tell me about this Rock and Rio show? I mean, what? how did this come about? This is a whole other part of the world, and this was the biggest show. How many people? And what do you know about Rock and Rio with AHA? The thing is that uh, somebody told them, you know, that you might sell less records than you used to here in Europe, but you are big, big, big in South America. And at, in, in those days, you didn't, you know, a lot of sales were, you know, under the radar you, you didn't get the sales report you, you mm. kind of oh we have, we have sold 100,000 in Brazil that's great no it's actually 1 million but 900,000 of those copies are bootleg copies yeah. of the of the album or they don't report every sale so, so they had a much bigger audience in South America than they realized because based on the official sales it didn't seem so big so when they actually went down there and played you know it was a festival but it was one show for each night. So you have Prince playing one night, filling it up quite good with like 60,000, 70,000 people. And then you have Guns N' Roses also filling it up quite good with 60,000, 70,000. And then you have a ha, and they sell every possible ticket. You know, the official number was 180,000 people <laughs> in that stadium. I mean, it must have looked quite empty those other two nights. <laughs> but they, of course thought that was great but they were really sorry about the fact that MTV that had been you know MTV was the was where they broke through and they won all the MTV music awards and everything and then not even 10 years later they play rock in rio and they are the only band that's not mentioned when they have a special from rock in rio they yeah. don't even mention that the hot play mm -hmm. there and they had twice the audience or more than the other bands. It was in the Guinness Book of Records for, for years. Crazy. Okay, so you touched on MTV and you also, you know, like these pencil sketches, you also, you put that into the film, like these, mm -hmm. you know, little snippets of flashbacks and things, which I thought was really creative. Did you do the, I mean, you have this talent, it seems like, or how, do, how, does, how does this pencil sketch animation work? I, I still don't understand it to this day. <laughs> Um, it's a big secret. It's e no, it's much easier these days because when they made the music video, they had to actually paint every single frame oh. or, or draw every single frame. So there were thousands and thousands and thousands of, of drawings to, to make that. You, you shoot a person, like when Morton sings and works around the different rooms, they just record that as a normal music video, and then they paint over it. But they had to make every single drawing by hand. But nowadays, this is done uh, with some help from computers. So it's much easier or, or we would have no chance to afford it. Yeah. But the idea actually came because I was thinking, okay, in the first years when they are children and when they are young and when they have their first bands and even the early days of AHA, there won't be much material. So I will have to use the same still photography for like 10 times. And I don't want that. So I need something. I need to shoot something. And then I just thought, I actually thought it was maybe a, a, an idea that was a bit too obvious. So I was a, a little bit concerned that it wouldn't work out as, as good uh, and that people would just think, ah, it took that idea. 
but it uh, was nice. They did a great job in Germany uh, doing the animation, and I shot and edited all the scenes with live action, and I just told them where I wanted the animation, you know, to go from live action to animation and back again. And also I had this idea that in the end of the film, they become the animated guys again, because <laughs> that's their fate, you yeah. know. <laughs> they have to go up on stage and do take on me, you know. That that's what they have to do for the rest of their lives. And that's also very telling of being in a band, you know. If you get a hit, you will always have to play it. And even though they didn't want to be a cartoon band after a while, you know, you can't escape the success you have. You have to you know, stones have to play satisfaction and so on. Yeah. <laughs> Most bands have to play the the big hit. So it it was an idea that came really early. Sometimes the best ideas are right in front of you. So. Yeah, that's true. That's true. You have to trust those ideas and not be so afraid that some people might not like them. No one's going to turn off the film if they don't like it. But I think it would really it, it it serves to draw people in, even though you want them to get the band currently. You know the whole uh, you know arc of the band, the emotion yeah. of it. You know the memories of it draws them in. I would think. And they are plugging in. The, uh, they have a new album coming out. This is yeah, what they're going to be yeah. plugging. Yeah, as soon as I stopped filming, they made a new album. <laughs> Bastards. <Ugh. laughs> yeah, I guess they were tired of having me around for five years. Um, so one film that you are, I think, kind of interested in is this this film, uh, The Worst Person in the World. How did you get attached to this? I mean, this is you're the producer on this film. And uh, did you... Did the script fall in your hands and like, oh, uh, this is this this could be something good? No, I I worked with the director for for many years. Okay. So this was uh, this was the third film we did together, or in a way the fourth film because I was executive producer on the first one, and then we did three films in a row uh, now that I produced. So yeah, we did Louder and Bombs in the U.S. We were in New York for half a year to do that with. Uh, Gabriel Byrne and Jesse Eisenberg and Isabelle Huppert. That was in 2000. That came out in 2015. And then, then we did a film called Thelma in 2017. But this time everything fell into place. This time, you know, everything just clicked. We were in Cannes in the main competition already with Blood and Bombs. And the previous film, Oslo 31st of August, was also in Cannes, but uh, in uh, in a side program. But we came back this time. First, to, back to Cannes in the main competition. But when the actress won the award for Best Actress, that's when everything kind of changed. And the film almost traveled on its own out in the world. And yeah. we have now more than one million admissions worldwide, which is crazy for a film like this. It places it as one of the most seen Norwegian films ever. Mm. And, you know, it's not a commercial film. You know, from the starting point, it was just another art house film a little more light than his previous films but still a, an art house film so it has just 
it's just an adventure, you know. I was convinced that it would do better than his previous films, I mean, commercially, but I didn't see it coming in this way. And, and who is the, the actress who plays Julie? She's called Renate Reinsve, and she's, this is her first big role. She has done some television and some other films, but this is her first as the main actress. Just a knockout. Amazing. Uh, yeah. Quite a film. I didn't only watch uh, Let It Be when I was 10 years old. I also was, watched the Oscar shows. And when I started, you know, and I come from a film family. And, of course, you know, you kind of feel that, you know, you should at one point be there, uh, you know, to, to feel that you have done what you could in the business. And so being the first in the family, a big uh, film family where everybody, both on my father's side and on my mother's side, are uh, either directors, actors, producers, or whatever. Uh, so, so that's that's uh, great. Uh, on behalf of the whole family, I'm going there. Oh, congratulations! Let's say you're at the governor's party, and who are you going to make a beeline for? Like, I have to say hello to this person <laughs> for my parents, for my I whole family. Who who do I need to talk to just to say I love you so much? I've met this fifty super famous people in my life including Morton Harkett so I'm not going to stand there you know looking at people you know if they come to me we can talk <laughs> well you know there's a, everyone has their like like Dave has his Bruce Springsteen you know you may he may not approach Clint Eastwood but you would definitely approach Bruce Springsteen if you saw Spielberg would you go up to him and say you know hello I, I've admired your work I admire your work <laughs> <laughs> you do good stuff the thing is it's, it's really strange because you kind of don't want to do that because you think that they get that all day long, every day, so you don't do it. But when people come up to me, you know, and say, I really love your film, I think it's uh, nice. <laughs> but uh, it would have been Paul Thomas Anderson. Oh, is that right? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Valley and boy. he loves the film. You know, we are not sure which appreciation we, we prefer the most, if it's Barack Obama having it as one of his favorite films or Paul Thomas Anderson. You know, it's, a, <laughs> it's really tight between the two. You can say both. You don't have to rank them. Yeah, both of those were like great moments for us, of course, that they love the film. Well, if you, when you come to Los Angeles and if you need a tour of the San Fernando Valley, Holly and I can both do that. That's, this is where we grew <laughs> up. So it's, uh... Yeah, yeah. I've been to, to Los Angeles just once. And I always thought, because they, I, I, I didn't have a reason to go, I did, I've actually been the Norwegian candidate for the, for the Oscar, you know, they choose one candidate from each country, and then you have to fight to, to get on the shortlist and then to be nominated. And I've been Norwegian candidate with films four times. But the first time we were chosen, I couldn't go because my daughter... Uh, small at the time or quite small she was actually in the film but still somebody had to stay at home so the, the director who was my previous partner went over with the actress and I stayed at home and the second time I was a uh, candidate uh, was with Thelma so then we went over and that was my first time in LA and I was sure I, I was gonna hate LA uh, I was totally convinced because I'm a New York kind of guy mm where I've been uh, lots of times. But I love the lane much more than I expected. Uh, I love the climate. I loved going around uh, on, in the studios. And I felt kind of like this is where I should be. <laughs> the thing is that when I went to Los Angeles, I loved it much more than I expected. And I really loved to be down on Venice. So I, have, I booked a hotel in Venice. 
And that's also where Paul from Aha lives. Oh. He lives on Venice. But he, oh. Paul, yeah, but he's on tour. So I'm going to meet his son, which I've get, gotten to know well, and his wife, Lauren. Who, who, and they love the film, which Paul doesn't. But Is that right? Yes. Is that Paul feels that uh, it's too much conflicts, and he feels that the other two get to say to you know just tell their story. I, I try to get all of them to tell their story, and and they will never agree on the story of Aha anyway. And most people or all people that see the film kind of like all three and understand all three, and that was my ambition. But Paul feels that the other two get too much, you know, to tell their their part of it. And also, he, I mean, he doesn't dislike the film i think as as a whole but it just feels that kind of maybe too much on the conflicts and i'm a little bit sad about it because paul was the one i connected the most with during the shoot but i just had to be very honest about what i found when i made the film i mm -hmm. went in there and i this is what i found and and he was the first one to talk about the conflicts and so i had to follow up with the other two and it would be strange to make a film about aha without mentioning the conflicts and also i don't think it would be a film that that would get such great reactions as, as because if it becomes only kind of a, a fan film even though i am a fan <laughs> but if it becomes just about you know the surface mm -hmm. then you know all the great music films have conflicts in them and all the great bands have conflicts that's paul that's a quote from paul <laughs> so i mean if you are a great band we should also focus on the conflicts in 10 years time is going to love it i think that's a badge of honor actually if uh, if all three have something that they don't agree they don't think it's great then i think you you made it perfect <laughs> you know if everyone's up if there was just one person you know like if morton was happy with it, with it and the other two were upset then, you know, then it wouldn't have worked. You made everyone like, well, you could have done this better. Yeah. So as long as everyone's a little disgruntled, I think you did a good job with it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> That's aha right there. <laughs> yeah. We wanted to see the conflict. I feel fulfilled. <laughs> yeah. No, honestly, yes. Yeah. Yeah, as, as, you know, growing up in the 80s, we didn't know much about aha, but it's kind of cool. I often wonder about these bands that, you know, were huge and then they seemingly disappear but you know they don't disappear. They're they're still musicians. They still want to play, and that's that's what they you know that's their passion. So you were able to continue that story, and so you know a United States audience can kind of fall in love with uh, this band again. That's kind of cool. Yeah, I hope so. And I'm actually surprised about how many interviews uh, people want from the states. I mean, it's it's actually more than any other country. And in Germany and UK, they are still huge. But in in the US. I'm doing more interviews for U.S. than in Norway and U.K. and Germany, and that surprises me. But I think the thing that might work in the States even more than in Norway is exactly the fact that the band has been hidden for so many years. That happened with a, a Danish band that were huge in the 70s, and then they disappeared. And when uh, they made a documentary about them, like I think it was 15 years ago in Denmark, that was an enormous success in the, in cinemas in in Denmark because everybody was wondering what happened with that band. Yeah. Why did they break up? They were so successful. Why did they break up? Which what band? happened with the other? It, it was a band called Gasoline. It was and, Gasoline, uh, and and yeah, they were produced by uh, the same producers Queen, but they didn't make it outside of. Actually, they spent most of their the money they they earned in Denmark. They spent on trying to make it in the US. And, and failed. Yeah. So when when the band broke up, they were all broke. Even though they were 
so enormously successful. Yeah. So that documentary is great. It's one of my favorites. The guitar player had to go on welfare a couple of weeks after the band broke up. And mm-hmm. and so the, the person at the office, you know, asked him, what, why do you need, you know, money from us? You know, you, you were in Gasol, <laughs> yeah. you know? And he, his answer is, it's up and down in showbiz. Would you believe us if we told you this is the second conversation this week we're having about gasoline? The, the band? Yeah. Are, we, you, uh, are you kidding? We interviewed a, we had a, a Danish guest on the show this week. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. But you haven't heard the music. I no, guess. no, we have not. No, but we're going to now. Yeah, now I have to dig, <laughs> I have to dig up this uh, this documentary. Yeah. 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 Yeah, you should. It's really great. Uh, it's one of my favorites, actually. <laughs> Amazing. I'm doubly inspired now. <laughs> right. <laughs> so congratulations on Worst Person in the World and AHA, the movie. We had a great time watching it and it was really wonderful. So thank you so much. Thank Look- you. Thank you so much and congratulations. Yes. Take care. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Okay. Wonderful chat with Thomas Robson. I thoroughly enjoyed it. He was in his car when he was talking to us, so it still worked out perfectly fine. Uh, it was great to learn a little bit about the band AHA and uh, a little bit about First Person in the World and a lot about Thomas Robson. And we only learned at the end that he had his daughter in the car with him, so she sacrificed a whole hour of car time with her dad for this, so... Thank you to her. Thank you to Jolyn Matsumura for setting this up with us. It was a true treat to talk with Thomas. And we've got new episodes every Friday, don't we? New episodes every Friday. And also a thank you to Pantheon Podcasts, our great big podcast family. Also subscribe. And if you love what you heard, of course, reviews and stars and uh, green leaf, green clovers and uh, whatever else, blue diamonds. I don't know. Whatever you do. You sound like you're talking about Lucky Charms. I am. Well, it is the day after St. Patrick's Day, so it's on my mind. All right, so let's just wrap this up. Thank you again to Holly, as always. It was a wonderful chatting with you, seeing you from a virtual distance. And you as well. Thank you, Dave. Well, thanks. Okay, so until next time, this is Dave. This is Holly. Check you later. Over and out. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.